0: But this is the fundamentalist problem, or one of them, is they tend to bundle everything together so tightly that if you lose one aspect of your theology, it all goes down together. It all collapses together. Um, it doesn't need to be that way. You can totally rethink your you know, atonement theories or your ideas about afterlife judgment or your eschatology without necessarily having to destroy Christian faith. And the other thing is, none of this is particularly new. We're in a, we're in a time when, when there seems to be an acceleration in the numbers of people that are having to rethink faith. I get all that, and that there is something peculiar about modernity, and Nietzsche saw that and foretold it and all. Um, but the issues that are driving Christians to go through, quote, deconstruction, and maybe, not, maybe their faith doesn't survive it, they're not new issues. They're not new questions. These things, the church has been addressing most of them anyway for a very long time.
1: Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson. If you are new here, thank you for joining in on the conversation. If you've been around for a while, then thank you for continuing to support this work. A few things before we get to this week's episode. The one-stop shop for the podcast is www.thedeconstructionist.com. There you can stream our entire back catalog of episodes, link to us on social media, read our blog, and join our Patreon family, where we have all sorts of packages like our popular book club. The theme music this week is provided by our friend Clay under his moniker Forrest Clay. He just released an amazing all-new EP all about deconstruction called the Recover EP, and that is available anywhere you find your music. This week's guest is a returning guest, an amazing human being all around uh, who also has great taste in music. Uh, It's Brian Zond. Uh, We talk all about the state of the world and his amazing new book, uh, it's called When Everything's on Fire, Faith Forged from the Ashes. So go grab a copy anywhere books are sold. And without further ado, I bring you Brian Freakin' Zond. All right. Welcome back to the podcast. Brian Zond, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Oh, Thank you for inviting me. It's always a It's always a privilege. Absolutely. I was just looking and I think it's been since 2017, uh, since last uh, we had you on. So you've got a new book, uh, When Everything's on Fire, which could not be more appropriate of a title uh, in terms of all the uh, copious amounts of things that uh, seem to be um, kind of, you know, up in flames, as it were. Uh, so what inspired you to write this this book in particular?
0: Well, my wife and I have, uh, we've become pilgrims in our In our latter years now, (laughs) uh, we—by that I mean—we really we like going on long walks. I'm just back from Scotland just last week, and we we walked 70 miles on St. Cuthbert's Way. But our favorite is the uh, the 500 mile pilgrimage across northern Spain. Actually, begins in in the in the French Pyrenees, and then goes all the way to Santiago de Compostela, Spain. 500 miles. We've done it three times. The last time we did that um, was in the fall of 2019, two years ago, and of course, as you might imagine, this kind of life where you just you know it becomes very simple. You just you just carry all of your possessions that you need for 500 miles on your back, and you walk day after day. It gives you a lot of time to think. You can really sort of slide into a very contemplative and so I was I was thinking about you know the age in which we live is not a particular friend to maintaining Christian faith and it's it's just hard and things happen and and people lose their faith and it's it's an increasingly common story and then of course one right- wing Christian reaction is just to get mad about it <laughs> or cast it in terms of culture war uh, which is complete the completely doesn't help. And so I yeah, I understood that you know something has happened in modernity that has presented a particular challenge to Christian faith. And I was thinking about this and you know I've been a pastor I've been a pastor of one church for 40 years this first Sunday in November it'll be 40 years. And I was thinking well if I had the opportunity to talk to people who are going through what is sometimes called deconstruction. I'm sure we'll get into that term. Uh, <laughs> what would I say? And so I was just thinking about that. And we were, I don't know, about halfway through the Camino. We came to this, what town was it? I don't know if I can remember. Uh, I forgot. One one of the Spanish towns there uh, sits up on a hilltop, very lovely setting. And I sat there after our 15-mile walk or whatever that day, and um, – I outlined the, the 11 chapters of this book, and it stayed pretty close to it. Th- and I gave it the title, When Everything's on Fire. Uh, that was in 2019, and then, and then in early 2020. Well, no, everything's on fire. <laughs> but anyway, so that's, that's where it comes from. It comes from, I guess, a pastor's heart who's a little bit conversant in philosophy, who wants to try to help people navigate the world that we often refer to as deconstruction, in a way that hopefully reevaluates and reinvigorates faith, and rather rather than destroy faith.
1: Yeah, and I I, I loved your chapter by the way on uh, deconstructing deconstruction, and obviously uh, that's the name of of my podcast, and uh, and it's yeah. it's interesting, and I. The reason I love this chapter this so much is, is... This is the one podcast that
0: I must be on for this book. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> you know, it's 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 funny, though, because I, I look back and this chapter speaks exactly to kind of the way I've been feeling over the past, like, probably a couple years now. Um, you know, I, I was talking to a friend of mine recently about the fact that when Adam and I first started this podcast almost six years ago now... Uh, the der- term deconstruction in the way that it had kind of been co-opted from its original, you know, uh, definition as coined by Jacques Derrida um, was not as much in the lexicon probably as it is now. And, right. and now there's just a sea. there's a flood of podcasts who are kind of doing this sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, like progressive Christian uh, kind of formula, uh, but using it in a way that it was never intended on our part, anyway. I, I think ours would fall in line with exactly what you're saying in this chapter.
0: And, and, and there is a reason why the term has gained currency, right? I mean, somehow that word is resonating with people. It's not my favorite way to describe it. I think there maybe is some inherent danger sometimes because uh, deconstruction can sound too much like destruction. Uh, yes. And we can talk about all that. But But the fact remains that it has become a popular term for some reason. I mean, people do resonate with it. That they enter a period where their faith as they have received it, known it, practiced it maybe from childhood is just no longer tenable. And something something has to happen. Either it's a vigorous reevaluation that that has an end of sorts, and brings them into a a different place, hopefully a better place where Christian faith is again possible. Um, oh, but but that's not always the case. I mean, sometimes you you start and and if and if deconstruction is the end in itself, well, you can't deconstruct forever and have anything left. And right, that's why right. I, I feel like it's too much of a cavalier approach where the only goal is to tear everything down. And I, I, I do see some of that. And I, I view that as as um, very rude, <laughs> if nothing else. I mean, if you want to tear, if you want to destroy your own faith, it's your faith. Okay. Uh, I would like to talk with you first, but, okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but to, to deliberately set out, to try to kind of demolish people's faith. It reminds me of the philosophy professors that I saw in college way back when, who just got some sort of perverse glee out of demolishing the Christian faith of, you know, freshmen. And I just thought, well, you know, come on. I just felt like that was not a very noble endeavor.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. It's funny we we were having this very same conversation years and years ago. Uh we were actually sitting down with Rob Bell mm-hmm. and and we're saying that you know, we we have this love-hate relationship with the term itself and obviously we kind of used it as our as our podcast name because we knew it was kind of provocative and it and uh for a large uh number of people it it kind of gave a name to kind of a spiritual journey that they were on. And so for in in that sense, it was kind of a useful thing because they could put a name to the experience that they were going through. But we always had an issue with it because we never met destruction, you know? Uh, And so he, he was the one that suggested, we'll just put brackets around the D and the E. So then you have D and construction. Mm -hmm. We thought, Oh, that's great. So that's why we (laughs) did that. But, but, but I see a lot of that recently. And you talk about this in that chapter, you talk about the fact that for a lot, a lot of people who are coming out of more of a conservative fundamentalist background, they want to burn the whole thing down and yeah. and throw and the usually, baby out with the bathwater There's
0: a backstory there somewhere usually sure. there's pain there's uh they've suffered something, and so um I want to be tender with those people I want to be careful because usually there's a story, and uh you know as as the saying goes, hurt people, hurt people and um so I understand that and and there are plenty of stories to be told. I get that, but um. There is also that which is true, good, and beautiful about this
1: received faith that is Christianity. And I think what's so important that you say uh, in the book, also, and, and this is one of the things that we've we've tried to make clear in our podcast in in terms of the way that we mean uh, deconstruction, is that there's a difference between deconstruction or uh, destruction, rather, and restoration. It's very easy to knock a a building down. It's much more difficult and takes right. a lot more time and skill to restore it and renovate it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I in the book, I use the analogy of imagining that a precious icon of Christ is found in some forgotten corner in a monastery in Russia somewhere. And uh, it's valuable, it's precious, it has the image of Christ, it's a great work of art, but over the centuries, grime and soot and ash and dirt and whatever have created this dark patina upon the upon the icon, and the image of Christ is almost uh, obliterated well you don't throw it away you say okay let's see if we can restore it and so you bring in the restoration artist and whatever equipment not that I know anything about this but whatever equipment the restoration artist employs i'm pretty sure that in her bag of tricks you don't find dynamite <laughs> and sledgehammers and so you know this is this is a it's a precious thing uh, and so we want to be careful with it. And so I, I think the end is not to, not to you know blow up the Buddhas like the Taliban does, but to see what can be recovered. And I understand that for some people it's an open question as they begin to enter this phase. Uh, they don't know. But but I, th- I think most of us could agree that faith is precious enough that we should at least hold out the hope that we can we can not destroy but restore. You know, I mean, I have my own story with that. I mean, I'm not a stranger to this. I mean, I went through a very radical, very public theological transition that began in 2004. I mean, while pastor in a church, so that makes it interesting. You know, it's one thing, you know, to, to to reevaluate your faith and all of that, you know, as a as it were a private citizen. It's another thing to do it very publicly as a pastor of a relatively large church and and that's you know that's my book Water to Wine which is kind of a memoir of sorts but that was that was I never thought of it as deconstruction I mean that was a little bit before that term was being used to describe what we're talking about I'd read enough Derrida I, I knew that term I understood it theologically but I mean uh, philosophically but I never thought of it like that I just I mean I was I was always able to Make a distinction. This is just my story. I'm not saying everybody's this this way, but my fascination with Jesus never abated, and it was really never in question. I just reached the point where I thought Jesus deserves a better Christianity than what it is I'm seeing here in America in my context, and I went on a search for it. It didn't. I I, well, we can just we can just roll with this if you want, John. Uh, In the book. I yeah I, I like the water to wine metaphor uh, I like that a lot but another metaphor that I found helpful is I, I talk about your theological house you know now this is this is the metaphor I mean we all have our theological house this is how we think about God and what we say about God and all that sort of stuff and and our theological house comes to be however it does I mean we inherit it we just Pick things up here and there, and over time, if we think very much about God, there we have it, our theological house and I began to realize that I was embarrassed by my theological house i wasn 't ashamed of Jesus; I knew Jesus was just infinitely attractive i mean I mean, this is the thing John I mean, nobody really hates Jesus, right. <laughs> That's I mean, true. Nietzsche at times, if you attack Jesus of Nazareth, it just is a it. It never comes off. It just doesn't look good. <laughs> People don't buy it. Nietzsche tried it, but but he couldn't sustain it because he couldn't convince himself. He ends up being kind of a grudging admirer of Jesus. Um. So so I wasn't ashamed of Jesus, but but I was embarrassed by the house I was living in, the theological house. So I, I didn't want to have company over. You know. And so, um, you know, what happens? Well, then you decide, you know what? I'm going to remodel my house. Have have you ever tried to remodel a house while living in it? (laughs) It's messy. It's inconvenient. It's difficult. It will cost more than you think and take longer than you think. Um, But that's what I did. But your, your theological house isn't just... It isn't one room it's not one it's not, it's not a one room bungalow its It's kind of like this sprawling old English manor house, you know or something and i had I had rooms that i probably we added a coat of paint, you know there wasn't a lot of changing. I think my Christology is deeper and richer today, but I don't think it was significantly altered in any way. Uh, on the other hand, we, there was a whole wing called eschatology. <laughs> that that wing actually did go through some real serious deconstruction. I mean, we brought in the sledgehammers, took it down, not just down to the studs. I think we took it down to the foundation. <laughs> Cuz you know, I had just inherited that, you know, what I'm talking about, that yeah, yeah. late great planet earth left behind dispensationalism. Not yes. I want I want to I want to defend myself here a little bit. Um, I never liked the left behind stuff. I when it was the, all the rage, I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read these because, you know, the whole world is reading these. And I got, I, I, couldn't, I got halfway through the first chapter and couldn't read it. I was so offended, not by the theology. I probably believed a lot of the theology, but by just how terrible the prose was. <laughs> I just thought I'm better than this. I'm, just, I'm not going to read this level of literature. And yeah. so, so, so some things, and see, but this is the fundamentalist problem, or one of them is they tend to bundle everything together so tightly that if you lose one aspect of your theology, it all goes down together. It all collapses together. Um, it doesn't need to be that way. You can totally rethink your you know, atonement theories or your ideas about afterlife judgment or your eschatology without necessarily having to destroy Christian faith. And the other thing is, uh, none of this is particularly new. We we're in a we're in a time when when there seems to be an acceleration in the numbers of people that are having to rethink faith. I get all that. And that there is something peculiar about modernity. And Nietzsche saw that and foretold it and all. Uh, but the issues that are driving Christians to go through quote deconstruction and maybe not maybe their faith doesn't survive it, they're not new issues. They're not new questions. They're these things the church has been addressing most of them anyway for a very long time. Um, it it tends to be though the people that come from some kind of evangelical or quasi fundamentalist background, where in a in a weird sort of way. They continue to be fundamentalist. <laughs> you know how a fundamentalist believes that the only legitimate version of Christianity is fundamentalism, and then when that doesn't work for them, they make another fundamentalist move and say, well, then I just have to reject all of Christianity. They never pause and go minute." Right. There's Eastern Orthodoxy. There's Catholicism. There's mainline Protestantism. There's all kinds of options out there. Um, all right. Well, I'm now now I'm just going on and on. So you're gonna have to jump in here, John, and get us back on track.
1: No, that that's good. I, I think uh it, it's interesting because a lot of my friends who kind of came out of that more of a fundamentalist movement, uh they 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 kind of argue that they take the Bible more seriously than the rest of us and yet kind of ignore hundreds and hundreds of years of, you know, biblical history and Christian history that came before the 20th century. And it's like yeah, you know, once you start digging in and and at this point in my opinion we have no excuse to 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 be uneducated at this point in the age of the internet and yeah. and you know and uh information that's so easily accessible there there is a lot of information out there that you can get at a moment's notice and you ter- tend to find out that a lot of these positions weren't the positions held by Christians. Yeah, fundamentalism
0: is a modern phenomenon. I mean, I'm talking about Christian fundamentalism. Is a wrong-headed reaction to the Enlightenment and the empiricism that's a part of that. Um, it, it, it's trying to use the tool. It's an it's a it's a fool's attempt at using the tools of empiricism to try to prove that that would be the word. Try to prove Christianity, which is no that isn't that isn't how this is done and that's a gambit that you're going to lose it's 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 actually once you accept and i i don't want people to misunderstand me uh i'm all for i'm all for science uh i don't know of a single m- major peer-reviewed scientific theory that is any threat to my faith none i don't know of one and, I, and I'm all for advancement in technology. I just got back from the dentist. I'm glad I wasn't going to a medieval dentist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's uh, <not> true. <laughs> but but we, we have Descartes um, this uh, uh, approaching um, epistemology through doubt. He says, all right, well, I'm going to doubt everything that can be doubted and find epistemological bedrock. That was his project and he's doubting everything, and then he realizes, oh, but in the process of doubting, I'm thinking, and there you go, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, and therefore the individual, that's part of the problem, the individual thinking self becomes the sole arbiter of what is true, and what that does is it 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 makes this implicit claim, and this becomes pretty clear in the Enlightenment, that all that can be known about being is going to be ascertained through the five physical senses. Well, I'm all for knowing all that can be known through the five physical senses. I'm just saying that when empiricism has done all it can do and has said all it can say, there's still more to be said. That That there is a world that is not accessible through those means. You call it heaven, you call it spirit, call it whatever you want to call it, call it the realm of the soul, but it's where things like love exist. And see, this is where Nietzsche and Marx and and Freud, the masters of suspicion, they're all all suspicious, especially of love. They believe that love can't be what it really claims to be. You know, Freud's gonna say, no, nah, it's mostly just about sex. And Marx says, No, nah, it's mostly about money. Uh and Nietzsche's gonna pretty he is gonna say, No, it's all about power. It's the idea of loving your neighbor, that's a slave morality, that's the way that the weak control the strong. And they're suspicious that that people really that love exists. I think most everyone, no matter what you think about God, you believe that love is real. I think. And that it isn't yes our 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 chemicals and and hormones and oh well, sure that's all a part of it because we are an embodied being, but is that all is it, are we just a machine, or is there well, if God is the one thing God is not is an object somewhere in the universe, and so you're not going to find him in the telescope or the microscope you're going to have to encounter him through what uh, to use common language through the heart, but see. In, the, in a post-Enlightenment world here in late modernity, we've been shamed by that. We, we've been said, oh, you, you you know, the heart, as if it's all just subjective emotionalism. Um, Blaise Pascal, the contemporary and intellectually intellectual equal of Descartes, and by the way, Descartes was a believing Catholic. He was trying, as it wasn't his main thing, but he was in part trying to prove the existence of God, which again, that's not how we go about it. But Blaise Pascal gives us this beautiful axiom, the heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. I think most people resonate with that. The heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. And so, if we're going to have a direct encounter with God, this is what we mean by mysticism. Mysticism doesn't mean, you know, whatever, witchcraft or <laughs> New okay. Age. I mean, it's, it's simply, by Christian mysticism, we simply mean the experience of a direct encounter with the divine. And, of course, the New Testament bears, well, the whole Bible, the, the, the Old Testament, New Testament bear witness, not only to the possibility of such things, but hint at the normalcy of such things. But this, this in fact, is the normal Jewish Christian life, is to be able to have some kind of subjective encounter with God. And um, but, but we've turned away from that in modernity, and it was Karl Rahner, great Catholic German theologian, who in 1971 said, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or nothing at all. Yes. I thought, I thought that was, that's very prescient. That's, you know, I, would put the, I would put the tag prophetic on that one. And I believe that's true. That that the project of sustaining Christian faith through the apologetics that are of the Josh McDowell or, or Ken Ham—that's really a bad one. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I think those days are over. They should never have arrived. They should never have come, but they did. Uh, people the people that are going to continue with Christian faith into the future I think for the most part are going to be people who say i do experience God in some way or another and so we we we've Descartes kicked us up inside our heads we're up in our head all the time, and i'm saying that Fine. If, if you're trying to invent microprocessors or explore black holes or whatever else you're doing, I'm all for that. I'm, I mean, Blaise Pascal was not against thought. I mean, he's one of the greatest mathematicians in history. He was a rational thinker. But Blaise Pascal understood that that's not the entire... that That there are ways of knowing that are not rational, that are maybe spiritual he uses the word heart the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing and so i think christians need to climb down out of their out of the attic of their head up there with a bunch of old dusty national geographic magazines <laughs> and, and come down into the living room the hearth room where there's a, a fireplace and learn once again to encounter God. So I think like a lot of the the medieval mystics like John the Cross and Teresa of Avila and Julian of Norwich and, or more modern like uh, uh, Thomas Merton, they have a lot to say to this. And I think, I think those are the people we should be paying attention to right now.
1: Absolutely. And I think, um, I I think there's no accident that uh, mystics and uh, mysticism has, has seen a rise in recent times and kind of this, uh, because I think, In in large part, a lot of the kind of Western Christian uh, sort of interpretation of Christianity seems so heavily uh, bound to the Bible being the be all end all and and kind of does away with the kind of personal experience. Uh, and, and so I think there's no question. There's no. I mean, I don't think there's any uh, any accident that people like uh, like Richard Rohr, you know, a seventy something year old Catholic monk who's insanely popular with uh, yeah. with younger folks exactly. right now. Th- I don't think that's an accident. No, it's not an accident. And yeah, yeah, we we've
0: had a. Uh, in a, I mean, I could be harsh. I could be. I don't want to be too hard, but. Um, Certain expressions of Christianity in the American context feel very commercial. Um, You know, I've I've been a pastor for, it's coming up on 40 years, since I was 22. I'm 62, so it's a life's work, and I've been around that world, and I know it pretty well. Um, Most of, I want to be careful what I say here, but most of the pastors (laughs) I've known over the years If they weren't pastors, they would be businessmen. And this is a new phenomenon. Um, I've always kind of liked philosophy and then got pulled away from it because I didn't think that's what I was supposed to do as a pastor. And then when I had this transition or whatever you call it, deconstruction, although that's not the word I use... (laughs) <laughs> Beginning in 2004, I returned to philosophy and began to read it a lot. And it, you'd be surprised how many pastors thought that was the most absurd. They thought it was like it was like bizarre to them. And yet, that would have been the norm for whatever, forever up until you know maybe a hundred years ago in America. I mean, you you expected pastors to know philosophy and to be maybe more in tune with. Well, you, you, first of all, you expected them to know the church fathers. You expected them to know church history. You expected them to know the general contours of historical Christian theology. Um, many American pastors, most American pastors in the evangelical, especially the charismatic, that was my world charismatic context, they don't know any of that. Uh, right. What they do know is they, if... if you know, if the if the mega church pastor in your town wasn't a mega church pastor, he'd probably have the largest car dealership in town. And that's, <laughs> right. that's not, I mean, that, that, that don't mean that as ugly as it sounds. I'm just saying it's it's been very commercial. Eugene Peterson talked about, you know, the pastor has become a shopkeeper in America. Um and so and, and I think people, I mean, a certain kind, a more thoughtful person sees through that. And they say, well, if I'm going to be in, interested in religion or spirituality or church in any way, I really kind of want to, I want a mystic. <laughs> I, I want someone who maybe, to use the phrase of uh, Walter Bergman, can bring a word from elsewhere. Now, the the American church growth model has been, I don't think anybody, people aren't sitting around and consciously thinking this, but here's what what they really do, is they identify the assumed cultural values of America and then offer a little Jesus spin of it, a Jesus version of it, uh, and so that it's never really pushing against the grain. And that works. I mean, there's enough people that have there's enough people that still think, I've got to hold on to Jesus, and I also want to, you know, have money and raise good kids and have a victorious life, you know, that kind of language. And so they, okay, if there's a Jesus way of doing this, then that's what I want. But I think that's coming to an end. And more and more people are saying, if church, Christianity, religion has any value, I think it's going to be very different. Than a trip to the mall. It's going to be, there's gonna there's gonna have to be some sage-like quality to it. Something that that speaks of wisdom from a different time or from a different place. And so, uh, and of course of course, of late, the evangelical church in America has not just been commercial, it's now become intensely political, and they're just they're just publicly committing suicide. I mean there's there's an energy in it right now. It's negative, but there is energy. But they will not successfully pass on that kind of Christianity to a younger generation. They are just, you know, it's, it's the saddest thing in the world to see. This is more like my book, Postcards from Babylon. We're supposed to be talking about when everything's on fire, but it kind of all goes. Be
1: <laughs> right, right. No, I, I I hope you're I hope you're right uh, that that version of Christianity does not. Uh, pass on to the next generation. Um, and I, and I think you are right. I think this new generation of uh, what millennials or whatever came after that, um, uh, I think they are intensely smart and I think you're right. I think they do see, uh, in things that are authentic and inauthentic and they can, they can see the difference and they know the difference and we don't often give them that type of credit, I think. Um, but one of the things I want to get your, your take on, because you, you mentioned this, and I love this line in your book, is you talk about this popular aphorism, and we hear this all over the place all the time. There's a popular Christian radio station around here that plays like cool rock music and everything. And and I do, I enjoy their music, but they often, the tagline is often that, you know, this personal relationship mm. uh, with God. And so you talk about Christianity is not a relationship, it's a religion. And I would love for you to to uh, expand on that a little.
0: Yeah, Um We've become so sloppy in our language, and everything's mixed up. Christians do not claim that Christianity is the truth. Christianities Christians claim that Jesus is the truth. <laughs> That's our claim that we we bear. We say Jesus is the truth of God, the truth of the logos incarnate. Um. But what happens is is. Um, we have this, we, we, we have Christ. We, we have the, the, the Logos that becomes flesh in and the, and the entire gospel story of incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. Out of that grows the Christian religion of faith, dogma, doctrine, theology, practice. Um, that's the Christian religion. Uh, Somebody says, Jesus didn't come to start a religion. Of course not. He already had a religion. He was a Jew. Right. (laughs) Uh, But the impact of the word becoming flesh and joining humanity was such that it is inevitable that a religion is going to grow up around that. Um, So, but then what happens is, is uh, Voltaire and... His successors come along and begin to mount a relentless attack upon religion and tradition. And this is the hallmark of modernity, by the way. Modernity is a tradition of critiquing all other traditions. Modernity likes to pretend it's not a tradition. It thinks modernity is very arrogant. Modernity says, We're just the truth. We're just the truth but but their, their truth is to attack all other traditions, and so I don't really consider myself postmodern. I don't know what I am, or maybe I'm kind of right wing postmodern but <laughs> but I, I do appreciate this from po- from postmodernity. It punctures the pride of modernity. It is postmodernity that kind of holds up a mirror and says, "You know, modernity, you're just a tradition of critiquing <laughs> all other traditions, but you're still a tradition. Well. So so the impulse that you see among certain Christians uh that Christianity is not a religion it's a relationship it's not a, they are they are not responding they're not emulating rather Christ or apostles they're emulating Voltaire and Nietzsche that's who that's really who they're emulating whether they know it or not and uh, we just don't need to do that i mean first of all Jesus was by any definition a deeply religious man. I mean, with religious texts, religious, uh, probably apparel, religious diet, religious calendar. Jesus was an observant Jew whose religion formed his life. So, so to say now what Jesus was critical of was hypocrisy. And I think that's another w- a way that we're sloppy, that sometimes... Um, what we mean by being against religion is against hypocrisy. Well, rock on, yeah. We want to be against hypocrisy. Um, let's just be careful we don't define hypocrisy too tight so that so that. Any failure to live up to your highest aspiration is hypocrisy. That's not hypocrisy. That's just failure. That's just that's just being a sinner. That's just being human. That we we have our highest aspirations and we fall short. That's not hypocrisy. We know what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy, hypocrisy is is deliberately, knowingly pretending you're something than you other than you really are. That it all becomes a, a facade, a charade. Uh, yes, Jesus has his most vicious assault upon that kind of distortion of religion. But Jesus isn't against religion itself. Um, So, you know, I tell people all the time, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, you can thank the Christian religion for making that possible. Because it's the Christian religion that maintains the message. I mean, the Jesus that you claim to have a personal relationship with, I assume that you have a Bible somewhere in that story, that you've read the gospel stories. and all, where? where do you? Who do you think prints these Bibles? Who do you think translates these Bibles? This, this is an activity within the Christian religion. Um, so, when we recognize that Christianity is a religion, I think in some ways, if you can hear me, it takes the pressure off. Because what what Those that say this, what they want to say then is they, if, if you say Christianity isn't a religion, then what is it? What are you left with? And they'll, they'll give various answers, but ultimately, if you push them hard enough, they'll say it's the truth. The truth. Well, that puts a lot of pressure on you because you're claiming that that your religion is ultimate truth. Well, it doesn't take long to find flaws in that. Because you'll find something where, where where the religion itself disagrees, and so then that means well it's it's actually my little strand of 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 Christianity that is the truth, and you see how how that doesn't work. So when I say that Christianity is a religion, I'm giving it room to be wrong in certain areas, but also to be uh somewhat flexible and able to change over time rooted rooted in history rooted in our our long history, but still capable of changing. So, you know, and and then often when people, another conflation they make is is they conflate Christianity and the Bible all into one thing. And, well, this creates scandal because there's a lot of examples, but the, the one I usually go to is, The Bible never gives a clear, unequivocal condemnation of the institution of slavery in the Old or New Testament. I mean, the New Testament, it's slaves obey your masters. It's in there four times. And so if you're being honest, you you just say, okay, the Bible in its self-aware state, even in the New Testament, doesn't have a vision of the abolition of slavery. Now, I would say there are ideas that are communicated through Scripture from Christ and from Paul that eventually uh will cause some things to click but so so the bible isn't christianity the bible is the canonical text within the religion that we always have to be rooted in and have conversation with but because it's not it's not the faith itself the religion of christianity is growing and it changes over time and it's capable of producing limbs and bowels of abolition so um I, I guess the, the simplest way I would protest the idea that Christianity is not a religion; it's a relationship. That it, that that sloppy sentiment, and it's driven by wanting to keep Voltaire and Nietzsche and their successors happy. And we don't have to do that. <laughs> it is a religion. Yeah, and I am a religious man. Um, you know, people say, "Well, I'm not. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual." We're all spiritual. Who isn't spiritual? We're all spiritual. But I'm also religious. <laughs> And I, I mean, it's the last act of rebellion in our secular age to be religious. I mean, wh- wh- how else wh- in our libertine age? How else are you going to rebel? <laughs> what can you do, man? That guy's a rebel. I, I think to be deliberately religious <laughs> and to say it yeah. takes. I mean, I got, I got, I have my Ramon shirt on here. So I mean, it's <laughs> punk rock to be religious in the age in which we live. It is. That is true. <laughs> um, that's wh- that's a good line. There you go. That's the line for the. That's the quote that you promote the podcast with. With, with this episode, BZ. Why did I say it? Uh, I don't know I was just riffing there, but but uh, uh, to to be religious in this age is a little bit punk rock or something like that. Well, whatever.
1: Well, that's per, that's the T-shirt right there. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's so true. And and I think, uh, again, I think this all comes back nicely to what we were talking about previously, uh, about, uh, mysticism and the fact that mysticism does allow you that space and that room for, uh, your religion to grow and to, and to be wrong, you know, uh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, one of the sections of the book that I think, uh, is probably my favorite starts on page 44. Uh, I think people should need to go out and get the book so they know what I'm talking about, but it's a section that you called hard wanted, uh, hard one advice. And you've got, uh, uh, this nice little breakdown of different, uh, pieces of advice. And the first thing obviously starting off with is don't be afraid and don't be ashamed. And it, it references obviously, uh, going through a period of doubt as something that's a natural part of the process.
0: Yeah, you can't be a believer without the possibility of also, or without the without the reality of also being a doubter. I mean, the idea that that um, it's a fallacy to think that to believe means you don't doubt. Uh, no, we we are constantly making the leap to faith. Uh, we have to do it over and over and over. Um, but the struggle with doubt is what we do as believers. And so it's it's just nothing to be ashamed of or really even afraid of. Um, you know, I've, I mean, I think early in the book, I quote Dostoevsky, who says, uh, uh, I believe in Christ not as some child. My Hosanna has passed through an enormous furnace of doubt. And I just mm. want to tell people, I've, I, I've wrestled with all, I've, I've tried, i tried, at least philosophically to be an atheist while being a pastor and I just I just couldn't do it I just I honestly couldn't get there but when you when you take on your doubts when you just you know doubts if you deny them if you try to pretend they're not there you lock them in a closet somewhere that's where they turn into monsters um, um if you just bring doubt out into the open into the daylight and say well let's look at this doubt most of them aren't that scary most of them, are said, well, okay, I think I can work around this, or work with this, or you know, live with it if I have to. Uh, yeah, that's what—that's kind of what I think about that.
1: Yeah, and, and one of the things that I, I think is interesting about that also is—is is, uh, one of the things that your your book kind of brought to mind for me is this idea that uh, there's only one 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 side of the pendulum and you talk about this also actually uh, be, beware of the pendulum uh, yeah. but you talk about the fact that uh, you know there's 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 this fallacy that there's only one uh, one of two ways, one of two paths I guess to go and it's either this kind of American uh, version of Christianity, this this Western kind of fundamentalist version of Christianity or or atheism. And, and that's it. Those are your only two choices. And and you're still a fundamentalist when you become an atheist when you do that. <laughs> right, right.
0: It's you, just like an, an extreme position. You just left Christianity, but you're still a fundamentalist.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's it, it's it's kind of interesting because when I talk to people, when I talk to uh, friends of mine who are who are you know alleged staunch, staunch atheists, oftentimes they are arguing against uh, what I perceive to be a caricature yeah. of God or of religion, and I thought. And I, and I look at him, I say, I don't believe in that version of God either. You know, so but how do we? G- tell you, you have to. <laughs> right, right. I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, <laughs> yeah it's, so, it's the strangest thing. I say, okay, you don't believe in God. Tell me about this God you don't believe in. Well, I don't believe in that God either. Well, then you're not a Christian. Yes, I am. No,
1: you are not <laughs> Well, hold on right. here. <laughs> yeah, how,
0: so, the, so, how now, do we? Now, now do the do... atheist gets to tell me I'm not a Christian because I don't <laughs> believe what they don't believe.
1: I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So it's kind of like, how do we change the conversation in such a way that says like, look, no, I, I take this just as seriously as you do. Uh, You know, and and you, you brought up the, the early church fathers earlier. And and that's a, I think a prime example of where we can go back in, in our church history and say, here are some early Christians who thought, uh, you know, and believed slightly different things. than perhaps this, this kind of uh, again, Western sort of version of Christianity. And, And they were still considered Christians. So, you know, so how do we how do we change kind of the conversation around this kind of dualistic
0: modern Christianity is pre-modern. And so the question then becomes, can a pre-modern faith live in a modern world? I say Yes. Others have said, no, we have to make Christian, we have to accommodate Christianity to this age, and we have to make it modern. I think that's what we're seeing the end of. I, I think mm. that's the Christianity that finally is going to die, that that it has been ripped out of its natural habitat, forced to try to uh, capitulate to the terms of modernity and empiricism, and it, it just, eventually, it won't live. But then... What I want to alert people to is that that was never the soil it was rooted in to begin with. Anyway, the historic faith is not rooted in that kind of soil. It's something much older. There, there. You don't. We don't. We don't read the Bible as a journalist or as a scientist. I mean, you can do textual criticism. I get that, and I like it. Uh, and I've read those books. I, I understand that. But that's not it, that's not what's going to feed your soul. I mean, you can do it. I mean, you know, there's there's value to knowing okay, there, there's uh deuter Isaiah. You know, there's there's second Isaiah that that there's Isaiah of Jerusalem and but then 150 years later there's Isaiah of the exile. You can see this in the text. I get all that. And I like it. That's cool. But I don't want to read my Bible forever like that. Okay, now I, now I know that can can I go back to a more ancient way of reading the scripture where actually we are expecting there to be inspiration. And we we expect somehow to, to see something fresh and new for the text to speak to us. You know, Lecto Divina. Um, now interestingly, interestingly though, interestingly, this is how many Pentecostals and charismatics read the Bible. Uh, I have never have understood how it is that Charismatics and Pentecostals got underneath the evangelical tent. Because they're mm. not evangelicals. They're, some, they're a different breed. It, I think it's the culture wars that put everybody under that same tent. But I would like to see Charismatics and Pentecostals actually going back to being a little more charismatic and Pentecostal. And uh, not necessarily feeling like they have to toe the line of fundamentalist biblicists. Uh, mm. it should, it's... For, I mean, for I'm all over the road here, but but for example, Pentecostals and Charismatics are just intuitively sacramental, and um, you know, modern fundamentalist evangelicalism is is almost totally non sacramental. They don't. The, 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 this is not a portal to another world. It, it's it's just a it's just a sign. It's just a memory. It's just a reminder. It's just a memorial. Uh well try to tell a Pentecostal that the laying on of hands is just symbolic. Say, oh no, 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 there's something to this. <laughs> right. Um yeah. so so but being sacrament, see, sacrament is, is pre-modern. It's within modernity that we end up trying to explain sacraments in a in an empiricist way, and then it the project collapses and everything just has to become um a symbol or a memorial, I think we should read. So, I would like Pentecostals and Charismatics to return to their roots and then understand that their roots are actually rooted in in the sacramental world of the early church.
1: Yeah, that. Um, ah, that yeah, that's fascinating. I, I think um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about kind of towards the end of your book, too, because um, I, I know we're uh, I want to squeeze a couple more things in here, Adia. So the grace of second naivete—I mm-hmm. I thought that was a fascinating chapter. This is kind of a return to innocence. Talk about that a little bit.
0: Yeah, this is a term that comes from Paul Ricoeur, French philosopher, and he's talking about uh, getting beyond the critical reading of the text. Maybe instead of talking about in philosophical terms, I should talk about um, just my own experience. And so I, I had a dramatic encounter with Christ as a teenager. Overnight, I went from being the high school Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. Uh, It it, it surprised everybody, including me, but it happened. It's not something that I can prove. I can can say that that Christ was revealed to me to be the Son of God. Uh, I can't prove that claim, and it can't be disproven. I can bear witness to it, and it can be believed or disbelieved. Uh, But immediately, upon that encounter, I began to read the Bible. And I read the Bible a lot, I mean a whole lot, and I read it very simply. I read it kind of on a, what I, would I say, a literal level. I wasn't a complete literalist. I, I mean, I was, always knew that there was going to be symbol and allegory, but I still pretty much read it literally. And it didn't create any problem. And, and, and if people can read the Bible literally and it's not a problem, I'm not here to talk them out of it. But usually, people that, you know, if you're living in this modern world and you're watching the PBS documentary now and then, (laughs) you know, eventually you might get some questions. And so, then you go on the project of learning how to read the Bible critically again, or or for for the first time, how to read it critically. And so, you know, how, how did, you know, the Old Testament, the Torah come to be. And then you get your JEDP, you get your, you know, uh, you know, documentary hypothesis. And I began to read all of that sort of stuff. And by the way, I loved every moment of it. I find it fascinating that you have yeah. the Yahwehists and the Elohimists and the Deuteronomists and the Priestly, and, and they're all... And, and that, and that's why you have two creation stories.
1: Right, yeah.
0: And, and, but then when you get to the Noah story for whatever reason whoever's behind all of this you know probably during the Babylonian exile who they, they didn't want to have two Noah stories two flood stories so they they put them into one which is why it's confusing and reads so awkwardly you could yeah. you could can, you could just do this on your own just look for lord in all caps L O R D that's you know Yahweh and then as opposed to God this is in your English translation Elohim and just pull those two apart and and when it's talking about Yahweh, read that story and when it's talking about Elohim or God, read it that way and and you you have two stories that don't perfectly agree but but each story is more coherent that way. Well, I mean, I started learning all that stuff, and I like it. it appealed to me, it didn't ever threaten my faith. I thought, well, that's really cool uh but then finally, you know, after twenty years of reading all of that stuff, and I did i mean I read it all um. I've reached the point where I feel like I've, I've come through to a, a second naivete. A, a return to a more childlike reading. So, I read the story of the parting of the Red Sea. And Israel coming through the waters. And the Egyptians being drowned. There's enough background... And higher criticism and other forms of uh, theology, that I, I'm no longer troubled. Did that literally happen? Can we find rusting chariots below the Red Sea somewhere if we just get the right scuba gear and submarines? <laughs> or, or do I, or I, I, don't, I don't have to deal with trouble about you know? Well, we seem to have a violent image of this God of the Old Testament that will command genocide and kill off entire armies in one fell swoop and that sort. No. That, that lurks in the background. I, I can actually draw upon that anytime I want. I can draw upon that knowledge. But that's not how I'm reading the Bible today. I just I want to I I need to hear the stories about a god who delivers an oppressed people and brings them through when there's no way and about giants that can be slain by little boys with slingshots and walls that can just crumble because people prayed and praised and I need those stories to feed my faith and not have to always read them as if i have to be uh reading in the academy i want to be able to read as we were intended to read in church and to read a story that is given to us to inspire faith in the living god and to evoke the idea that this god can be present in our lives in all kinds of surprising ways and so I think I think my deconstruction. I'll go back to that word. My deconstruction was, in one sense, very radical. I mean, if you, I mean, I've been more than one person in my life. It seems like you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the the Brian Zond, who was the pastor of Word of Life Church, let's say nineteen. Let me pick a good year, nineteen ninety six, and. The Brian's, Brian's on. I mean, if you do a DNA analysis, you'll find it's the same guy. But it's not the same guy. I mean, I've been born again and I've been born again and again. I've been born again again and again. It, it's just part of it. So it, I'm a very different person. And in one sense, I, can, I could be, you could embarrass me. You know, you pull up some, I mean, they exist somewhere. There's all those cassette tapes. You can find me preaching nonsense, you know, uh, I, the things that I would, that I would cringe at today. But in one sense, I don't want to be embarrassed. I want to say, well, you know, that was my journey. I don't know from where I started to where I am today. I don't know how I get here without going through some of that. I, maybe you do. I don't. And so I really don't want to be embarrassed. And, and I don't and I want to, I can even, there's enough distance now. I can look upon my 35-year-old self and have mercy on him and just say he just needs some more time it's okay he just needs some more time you know he's not done yet this this is a long pilgrimage he just started or he's, he's halfway or whatever and so um yeah there there is a, a way of once again returning to cuz i'll hear people say you know i don't I, I no longer believe in an interventionist god well look i mean i teach a prayer school and the thing that i say the most in prayer school is that the primary purpose of prayer is not to get God to do what we think God ought to do, but to be properly formed. That being said, I think God is constantly intervening in our lives. And, and, And to say, I no longer believe in an interventionist God, I think is just really trying to buffer yourself from any possibility of disappointment that we now pray such safe prayers that, that, well, first of all, we would never know if they were answered or not because we're not, <laughs> we're not even asking anything, really. Uh, I, think, I think people can bear disappointment. Uh, well, I think what we can't bear is the idea that God is absent. I mean, a non-interventionist God, I mean, I, to me, they, we're just back to deism. I mean, you've just, to me, you sound like you're Thomas Jefferson, you know, in the 18th century. Uh, You know, the the remote guy that, you know, built the clock and then ran off and let the thing run. Um, No, I think God's love is, it may not be, it's not something we can manipulate. It's not something we can write a how-to book, how to get God to do what you think God ought to do. Uh, That's gone. But does God respond in some way? To the aspiration of prayer and to me seeking to love other people by praying for them. I think I think those create all kinds of pathways for grace to come into their lives and our lives. So so I, I I've read the Bible literally, I've read it analytically, and now today I guess I want to read it mystically. I don't know if I say that in the book or not, but that's good. I, I should say that.
1: <laughs> I, I read love that. it
0: literally and then analytically, and now I want to read it mystically.
1: Oh, that, that might be in contention for the quote at the beginning yeah. now. So, <laughs> um, so one one last question. I I, I want to leave uh, our listeners with this. So, uh, when everything's on fire, faith forged from the ashes. What is your what is your hope for this book to do for folks who who read it?
0: Well, it's a pretty. I mean, I I got a couple of hopes. I think I hope that for some faith will be seen beautiful and credible. Um, but my biggest hope, and this is this is an outlandish hope, but I think there, I, I hope that there are some out there that can help preserve Christian faith in their life, that they might be in the possibility of being done, and this becomes a lifeline to uh, hold on and and maybe find their way to what I've found. I mean, I'm I am I'm not just writing at a distant objectivity. I'm writing really in one way from my own experience. That um, if if you have any inkling of a hope that there is the possibility of a better Christianity, I want to say that hope is well founded. There is, and I would, I mean it's that's a that's a big hope. But I hope that the book can help people move in that direction.
1: Well, I, having read it and gotten a, gotten a, a sneak peek at the book, cause I, I believe it comes out in, in November. Is November that November 9th. Yes. November 9th. So this episode will come out right around then. And, uh, I truly hope that people go get it. I think it's an absolutely fantastic book. I've of course been a fan of yours for, for a long time. So, uh, once again, appreciate you coming back on the show and, uh, and, and spending some time with us. John, thank you very much. It's a delight to talk with you. We
2: constructed these walls And I found a business Where the company line Was the only way to get paid We built a church uncertainly Everything against it. Where the refugees are. it to build a wall and reach across the aisle and fire